welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father, Rabbi Avi Horowitz, and myself, Ayelet, as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and topics inspired by the weekly Torah portion. This podcast is not religiously exclusive. No matter what religion you practice, please feel free to join us as we glean timeless Torah wisdom to help us better navigate the world we live in today, or simply put, just to give us something to think about, because that's always really awesome. So let's get schmoozing. everybody back to this week's episode we're really excited to be talking about a really relevant issue it's a very big issue there's a lot to talk about there's a lot to unpack here so pay attention we want to hear your thoughts your feedback this is this is a really big issue so let's go right into it it's funny you say that i yell at um starting off because what i'll, I'll explain why we're getting into this issue this week um but first of all i want to make a clarification um what, when you say you know, you're inviting everybody for their thoughts and their feedback, that it, it would be nice. But ultimately, I'm reminded that we started this podcast just really as a way of talking to each other about meaningful things. And my daughter, I yell at her here, sitting, um, asked me some time ago to write some write my thoughts once a week about this um, daily, you know, weekly portion. And I started doing it, but I stopped because I didn't feel that it was really receiving any feedback. So... Um, why do I mention this now? Because there's a long tradition, even in our family, I don't know if you know, but our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Isaiah Horowitz, Yeshayo Horowitz, who lived in uh, Vilna and Prague, and he was a great man who moved eventually to Israel. He His magnum opus, which is when he's referred to as the Shlal Shnei Luchot Abrit, um, that's the name of his book, was... Something that he that for the most for, for very often he gives you the the impression that he's writing it for his children. The Minchat Chinuch, or the Chinuch, sorry, the some other books that talk about the, all the commandments, all the mitzvot of the Torah, were books that were written as like a will and testament for the children. Um, I saw that some of the Shla going back to our you know where we're descendants from. I saw that they themselves also some of his children also do the same. They write like these ideas about life to their children as if it's a private conversation, but somehow these private conversations become public conversations and they become published and people comment on them. And because of the weightiness of their words, it becomes a well-studied document. So that got me thinking about this week's portion and the issue of public versus private. In this little world that we live in, <laughs> of me and you, um, we can have our own private conversation. The issue will be, when do we open that private conversation so that it should be a public conversation? And is there a difference between having a private conversation versus having a public conversation? Probably you'll come in and say, well, of course. But what we want to talk about today is, is that difference between public and private becoming blurred? And if it is, who cares? Is it important to maintain the difference between public and private life? And if it is important, um, why is it important? And what are the consequences of the blurring of those lines. Meaning, is there a value in privacy in itself? Okay, so we, we have to be really careful here because I'm not really sure th th where we're going to go with this because this is really big. And and, and I'm saying that now because you use the word privacy. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by privacy. Like, we're going to have to double-click on all these things. But when you say the word privacy, it, it, yeah, 
that is kind of when I'm talking about private life. I mean the the, the trap, the, the description of private life, which is different, you know, it's different from privacy. But I don't want to get too nitpicky right now. Let's just try to get into the issue, and then and then we'll start talking about it, like the the particulars. Because what does it have to do with the, the public reading of uh, of of Torah, right? That we do in, in every weekend, which is also interesting. There's there's public learning, and there's also private learning. In, in our tradition, right? There's private, your private thoughts and your private development of ideas, and then, and then there's the public, um, the, the, what's learned in public. There's a difference. There, there's actually a difference in you know in the norms of, of the J- Jewish tradition. For, for example, what the importance is of private learning versus public public learning, right? There is there is a difference in, the, in terms of the importance, um, being that you know public public learning is going to is going to take on a different dimension of importance because. If what's being learned is 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 clearly important and, and holy and, uh, and 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 good for everyone, so then of course public learning is going to get more importance. But I'm just talking about also here the particular differences between what would it mean to learn something in public versus learn something in private. There are certain areas of traditional Torah that are traditionally only learned in private and not in public. For example, issues whose who are that are so sensitive. Issues that are so esoteric that if learned in public, then you will be suffering the the um, with the the dangers of what it means to be in a public forum, which is basically misunderstanding. Meaning, there are some things that are so that's it's so important that it be understood clearly and well and exact that you don't take risks teaching it publicly and you only learn it in a way that's private, where a person can make sure that the other person taking in the information is taking it in well and good and that there it isn't being taken out of context. It isn't being given, it isn't being spoon fed to masses as opposed to individuals. Right. Well, let's, let's perhaps go back to the drawing board. Um, what, what is private life and what is public life? Simple meaning is private life is the life that is shared with loved ones, dear friends. And perhaps we can ex- expand that to spiritual companions or spiritual leaders, people that you will confide in people that guide you, where there is love that's sometimes bound by blood, biology, by family, um, where the shared, common, um, intimate, spiritual strivings are the same. So a close inner circle. Yeah. I'm, I'm using words where I'm trying to hear, hit the dimensions of family, friends, and spiritual friends, I guess. Mm-hmm. Shared experience, friends, and good friends that, I guess, share your beliefs and where where people know you mm-hmm. and they know where you're coming from whereas um public life is that which is experienced beyond these spaces among those that do not share necessarily those common bonds um but who do seek some sort of cooperative existence right which is basically society so there's not necessarily amongst those in society a binding force of family love or religious spirit so just just as an anecdote, I just want to start beginning. Um, I, I want to begin our, our conversation by, by marking the difference between the way I grew up and perhaps what I see today, so that we can try to get deeper into what an older generations see about what's happening in more, you know, modern generations. And when I say modern, I don't mean me being old and you being modern. I, I mean I, I consider myself part of the modern generations when, um, when you know, when you look at. The, the development of society, a lot of the factors that have made our society into a society where public and private is more and more enmeshed and confused, 
that's a process that perhaps we can say has become had begun many many years ago, maybe with the industrial revolution, with um, secularization of society. I think these are all issues, and these are issues that I've read in sociologists that talk about public and private. But I, like I said, I don't want to start going down a real deep rabbit's hole before we even start, you know, putting out everything on a, in a much more s- straightforward way. So let me just put it a little bit more, um, a little more friendly and colloquial. So, so when I was growing up, there was a, a sharper difference between public and private. There were words that we heard, like, um, and conversations that you had, that we had, like, in here versus out there. Right, it, like in here, we talked about things like maybe even dad's job, you know, his maybe even his salary, um, maybe intimate issues about sexuality, maybe troubles and problems, etc. That you talked about in here, but you don't talk about out there. And there was, um, it, you know, it was understood that that you know care and caution were needed out there. Why? Because amongst those who don't know you, um, where your words and actions can be misinterpreted, you needed to be careful. So the ultimate, um, I guess, bottom line was that it was healthier to draw the line between public and private because your uh, chance of being misunderstood by the way you express yourself or, or lack or the lack of or you, the way you act in certain ways um, is more likely to be misunderstood and can create um, detrimental consequences for you. For least. the individual. For the individual, perhaps for others as well. But primarily, just it's easier just to focus on that particular person. In the meantime, I'm just you know, starting from a very private, personal um, vantage point. So you see, you see where I'm going so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... I want to I want to distinguish I want to distinguish now between like just this aspect of private versus public life that we share privately or they share publicly to considerations of what is appropriate in private life versus public life. I think that's a separate issue. In other words, I'm I'm, I'm not we're not even, we're not talking about here necessarily um, um, yet. We're not talking about morality. In other words, what should I do in the public sphere and what should I do in the private sphere? And if what I do morally in the private sphere is correct to do in the, in the public sphere, um, the moral decisions, you know, based on my private life and the way I see things in that context versus, let's say, political, within the strict definition of the word polis, you know, what I do publicly, political decisions. What should we, what should we do versus what should I do? You understand what I'm saying? There's the, the issues of what should I do versus what should we do, should we do. That's a, a very related but somewhat different issue I'm talking about. I'm talking about w- without the, the should word, just the fee- just the way we live in public versus the way we live in private, like those examples that I was talking about. Certain things you talk about in private, certain things you act out in private, you don't do in public and you don't express in public. Right? I'm not talking about what's right or wrong. I'm just talking about what, what's, let's say, perhaps more healthy for the individual and for society. Okay. So that's one issue. So we're, we're taking just a, a more than you're saying a more general approach to the concepts of what, what is the inside private concept and what is the outside public 
concept and how we can understand it and relate to it. We're not going to go into the what should be going on in the private circle, what should be going on in the public circle, what the decisions being made should be. We're just talking about a concept here, making a different, making just, it seems like a very clear differentiation, making sure that, that there is a consciousness of, of things that do belong inside and things that belong outside and that there's a line in between. Right. I think we're going to get sticky if we talk about, in, in that first issue, we're going to talk about like, you know, strict moral codes, which obviously we, we believe in, but, um, you know, for the general public, we're not talking about strict moral codes. We're talking about words that have to do, that we used to hear a lot when we were younger, of like, in public, there are words that are, pl- pro, uh, that are, that are applied, that, uh, like civil, you know, what propriety, decorum, right? Mm-hmm. Those are those are sliding values, you know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about core values. Those are to be civil, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, we used to learn civics when we were in school. <laughs> yeah, you're even laughing. Just the because, thought is funny. Yeah, because it sounds, what does it sound like to you? Civics. Sounds like they're dated, right? We're going to learn, we're gonna learn to be Just imagining civic. a whole bunch of people with like rods down their back, sitting up straight and right. learning how to use their napkins and forks and stuff oh. and reciting the proper way of greeting. Right, you know, civics is like... We talk about the importance of voting and being an upstanding citizen, yeah, which I think is like, nice. That's your civic duty. But you'd right? never find that now. Civics, yeah. <laughs> so words like... Um, what about words like fairness, freedom, and equality? Mm-hmm. Those are pretty trendy, I'd say. <laughs> trendy so, but are they more, are they words that are they words that apply more out there or in here? Freedom, I'd, I'd say. Well, freedom's a tr- tough one. I'd say freedom is very much personal, but also very much um, shared and collective. What were the other two that you said? Fairness, freedom, and equality. I'd call those values, and uh, I think are they more out there or are they more in here? You know what I mean? They start in here, but it's we try to make them out there because without without those being out there, we would have a pretty sucky society, I think. Okay, but you're you're already going with the what's more correct. But I'm just saying okay. where are they more applicable, those words as you hear them? Fairness, freedom, and equality. Are they more topic of It's more out there socially dependent on the outside circles. Okay, what about compassion, courage, and respect? I would put those in the inside circle. Right? They're more in here, right? They're equally applicable out there, right? but they're more in here. Mm-hmm. So you, you see where I'm going? I'm going that I, I'm, all these, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, draw a fine line between, you know, clear moral um, decisions and thinking versus like a certain way of looking at life, right? Where there's a, a delineation between public and private, where certain things are expected in public and certain things are expected in private, but that there's a clear definition, clear definition between the two. Um, so if you would say today, to if you would say to a child who's like throwing some wrapper on the floor, you know, if you, what argument would you marshal to them to say you shouldn't throw that on the floor? I would go with more of a community responsibility. How do you, what kind of reception do you think you would get for that? Well, I, I hope that I hope to tie tie the child into the feeling of being part of something bigger, part of responsibility. Responsibility is, I, like we said before, something that I would describe more of a inner circle thing, but it very much is expressed outwardly as well. Well, what weight does it have today? Saying I know I know it's your perspective from your own life, but do you feel that I that gets to pick up rappers all the time? <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, what? How 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 much weight does that have in the child's eye? 
what, what would be a stronger argument to them? To say, to appeal to some individual in their belief of correct, you know, of morality, or say something like, it's not civil. It's, it's not, it's not, you're not being community conscious when you throw that on the floor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm saying, of course, you need to speak to a kid in a way that he can understand. So for a kid, that would definitely mean something internal, something he can touch and feel, and it would definitely be more, as you were calling it, in there. Well, I'm not, I wasn't trying to say a child that doesn't understand. I'm talking about someone who could either, you know, understand easily both concepts, an in-there concept or an out-there concept. I don't know. I don't know how to call that one. Well, my feeling is that an out-there concept is harder to grasp for people. It doesn't speak to them as much. You talk to them about community and responsibility, it just doesn't seem that it carries the same weight as some kind of a moral, personal responsibility. Meaning acting civilly as opposed to being a man of integrity? Yeah, some, however you want to phrase it. Mm. So I guess I'm, just, I'm struggling because even though you delineated before <clears throat> those two separate groups of words, they're kind of enmeshed for me. You can't be a civic person without being a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. And, and it, I'm, I, am, I am actually finding it hard to that's why I think, put in that line there. That's where I think the, we, our experiences diverge. It was because it's not hard for me to imagine these things. And that's why I'm trying to use it as a personal experience of what we grew up with, where public life was much more clearer in terms of your responsibilities there versus private life the way you acted and behaved there and expressed yourself there. I, I just see the manifestation of my outer life to be a reflection of my inner life. So I, mm-hmm. I find it hard then to, to meaning I, I understand where you're coming from about being, there are bigger social values that are out there be, that we do because we live in communities in the world in countries and States or whatever, um, and so we keep them together as people, and it doesn't have to do, it doesn't really come into my personal close circle um, necessarily. But it, you can't, where I'm having a hard time is is just completely disassociating them. I feel like you can't just go out there and be a decent person without first being a decent person in the inside, inside circle. Okay, so... I'm just like fuzzy about this. Yeah, you're... The, the thing is, if if you're going to go with talking about what decency is, you're I would assume decency you mean to be a morally correct person. Are are, are you trying to secularize the word decency and not talk about morally correct, like a person who lives morally as a moral, ethical person? I'm not. So what does decent mean? Saying someone who who is kind and honest. And someone who can be part of a group of other people and and have a good relationship with other people and and be so honest with other people. So I'm talking about the role the role of that person can be judged morally or it can be judged socially. I'm talking about the social aspect of it. In other words, what works? What what works? What functions? Well, how do people function better privately and 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 how do people function better um, publicly? Are there different sets of expected codes of conduct? For those two spheres of life, there there are definitely def- different expectations for the inner world and the outer world. There oh. are definitely different expectations there. That I under that I have clear. Do you, do you understand that there are certain things you would say in here that you wouldn't say out there? You wouldn't. Yes. Ex- would you express yourself the same way in here as you would out there? No. Okay. So, 
So the question is, um, are we, do t in today's world, do we think that we've lost the out there? Yeah. You're, you're saying you see a difference between in here and out there, but what do you think, um, what do you think you vis-a-vis -vis, uh, your, your parents or your people that are um, older than you and different earlier generation, what about your friends and acquaintances? What about the world in general that you look at? Do you think that there's more of a blurring between the in here and out there? Have we lost the out there? I, I feel like more than losing the out there, we've lost the in here. Meaning, I feel like there's been a, a losing of sensitivity between understanding that there are things that are not appropriate to be shared with others. I don't think the problem is not saying that there isn't out there. I think the problem is not saying that there isn't in here. I think... Okay, so what, maybe what you're saying is, is that private lives have become public. Yeah, very much so. So, so what I mean by that is that what was once called public morality has been lost. When you use words like public morality, you throw me off because I don't know if you're public talking morality, about... No, because I said those examples I said before. Let's say I, it, it, you, it, it could be, it was common in the 50s, 60s, maybe 70s, that children would be sitting down at a table and they would be talking about XYZ thing. Like I said, some examples that they would talk about in the house. And the mother more often than not would say, this is inappropriate to talk about with your friends. Mm. This is inappropriate. You know, if heaven forbid, something like that would be in the paper. Or um, people still cringed when they saw people expressing feelings publicly that were more intimate. There was more of a, um, a sensitivity to what you could express that was um, private in public. I still remember commercials were almost censored when, when I was younger. You couldn't just say whatever you wanted in a commercial. You, you couldn't. You couldn't expose. Certain, I mean, we're not only talking about physical exposure. We're talking about just taking something that is private and exposing it in public. So what is considered private? Um, your feelings, intimate lives, um, your inner, the inner workings, right? Let's say you want to expose another company and you want to say, um, our cleaning product is much better than Spick oh, and Span. I remember they had to blur out the company name. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't say because like, you know, there's, I have information about how, what they're not exposing, you know, their product doesn't work as well as ours because it's missing this, that, and the other. I think even though, of course, that you might say that that, that was considered unfair advertising and it kind of made the playing field not level, there were other considerations, but but one basic consideration was the general sensitivity that you can't just expose somebody like that in public. Mm. It's not fair. It's not, it's not appropriate. It's not a question. Of, maybe fairness is also there, but those are public words. Nobody, nobody come over you and say, if you told this to somebody that you knew, nobody would say, oh, you can't say that. You, you could say whatever you want. If you think you want to sell a product and you want to tell somebody else. Um, again, I'm not talking about moral codes and I'm not talking about mitzvot or anything like that. I'm just saying. Right, I was going to say this sounds a lot like our, our commandment of uh, Lashon Harab. Gossip mongering. How right. would you translate that? Right. So, so Speech. Right. It's true. And, and, I, and I want to, you know, I think part of the difficulty that we have of thinking of this is that we very much base our public life on private life in a moral sense. Those we try to build up society so that society will always respect the private, um, the private morality, the private the ability of the individual to protect and to uphold his moral views. Mm -hmm. So, so if the Torah will decide that X Y Z is moral, so public um, policy 
should never go against the that to make it hard or impossible for an individual to keep his moral beliefs. That's such a hard one, though. Yeah, but it's 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 hard. I don't know why you. I mean, because I'm just imagining that clearly when you believe that you that you are um, acting and believing something that is moral and true and good. And obviously you don't want, you don't, you wouldn't want in this case, the state to intervene and not allow for you to express what you believe to be morally correct. But there's a bunch of people going around thinking that they, that they are doing what is morally correct. And other people would look at that and say, that's insanity. So I don't know. It's not so relevant to this conversation, but it's, you said that. And I was like, well, you wait, wait a second. So, so now you're talking about competing beliefs. So that's why in a place in America where it's a state, where it's a country built for the diversity of mankind, right? It's not, it's not a nation state. So therefore, that model has to make a division between church and state, which, which basically means that everyone has the freedom of religion, but it also means you can't foist your religion on anybody else. Mm-hmm. So to you, what's, if it's moral to... Um, if it's moral and, and it's, if it's a moral... Uh, Human or, sacrifice. Yeah, obviously. I mean, certainly you can't infringe on the rights of others, but if you were going to sacrifice your own child, let's say, in public, in a public square, and that offended the sensitivities of other people who feel that you cannot do that, you cannot take someone's life, right? So then you shouldn't be able to do it in a public square. For the same reason, you know, doing a circumcision in private is the, your right to the freedom of religion in the United States. But if you wanted to make a, a circumcision in a public square, um, I would imagine that legally there would be some quite, you know, some stiff uh, opposition to that, because I think, you know, you can have Americans who say that you shouldn't mutilate, you know, what they consider mutilation, or you shouldn't, you know, before the child has a right to say yes or no, you should, whatever they believe, right? But the point is, um, you you can't, It's a, there's a fine line here, but, but basically, if you're dealing with an open society, a diverse society, so then, yeah, it gets very tricky, right? And, and in that sense, public policy can't endanger any of the particular belief systems of their and then their the people there so so you know so if um there there are all these cases now that are coming up where public policy is infringing on the rights or is getting close to infringing on the rights of you know public uh, gatherings for example you know jews and perhaps christians and muslims will say you know we need to have public gatherings Mm. to do to to pray and because of your uh, corona related uh, you know prohibitions um, and and new laws, you know, you're restricting our ability to 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 gather and to pray. So, whatever. But the point is, what I meant to say is that what, I used to say this a lot when I was teaching um, Jewish law in in law school in Chile is that normally public policy that's developed doesn't start from personal morality. It doesn't start from the responsibility that an individual has as law. Personal morality is your own decision. But where the, where it starts with religion, let's say Judaism, so Judaism starts the other way around. It starts from personal responsibility towards the law. And personal morality and law is the same. The law is morality. So you start with your own personal responsibility as an individual. And anything beyond that public um, decision-making that goes beyond the law, that, that is not necessarily dictated by the law, can never infringe on that personal moral space of each individual. So you can never have a law by a king that's going to take away the ability for people um, in his kingdom to exercise their responsibility and obligation to do X, Y, Z commandment of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Right? It has to be. It has to be um, 
sanctions and what in other words has to be part of the system in order to do that now we're really getting off on yeah there's so many questions yeah yeah (laughs) i knew this was going to (laughs) happen i was trying to keep it simple but um it's it's really hard to keep it simple but let's let's try to get back to what the main what i'm trying to keep as the main issue here i want to forward the following idea and see if we can bring it back to the torah reading this week um I read a book, or most of a book, called The Fall of Public Man by Richard Sennett. And it was written quite some time ago, 1977, but a lot of the things he says there are things that resonate in me as being true. I, I, a lot of my own analysis as to what's going on in today's society um, coincide with a lot of the things that he said. And one of the major theses of his book is that when private, um, that, that when private becomes public, in other words, when what was in there becomes out there and it becomes blurred, then um, the expectation is to relate to society and to the public as if it's private. right? And which, which in turn eliminates the meeting, so to speak, of the stranger that is meant to be the public space. And it leads to what I think today we call echo chambers, sectarianism and prejudice. Now, th- those are big jumps, but I, I want to just see if we could explain that for a second. Um when we say that private lives have become public, what we mean is, is that um, whatever we do in private and the expression that we need to, that we feel the need to do in our private circles um, has now spilled over into the public domain. Okay, so very, so on a, on a more coarse, you know, obvious, simple level, what you'll see today, again, I, I have a few more decades on life than you do, so you just have to take my word for it. When I, when I can see in my own life a, a descent from a certain amount of criteria that was exercised about what you express in public to today being a much more a flood of, of, uh, of you know, the, the floodgates are open. In other words, they, the, what you can say and do in public is much more um, what I would have called for the private domain mm-hmm. that today is completely expressed in the public domain. That means your inner feelings, that means your intimate activities or your intimate uh, world um, that could mean any any host of uh, different activities that you do or um, how, how you talk about other people or how you express yourself right or there's a, there's a there's a general disregard for the concept and the sensitivity of what it means to be in public so I mean there's a million examples but I the one that just pops in my head is like the the state of of uh, chivalrousness or the state of civility in conversation that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. People scream at each other in public as if they were in private. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about right or wrong. I'm not, I'm not taking an opinion there because it's not, that's not the point. Maybe you shouldn't scream at anybody anywhere, but the point is that... Well, point being beforehand, no one would have thought about screaming at someone else outside, and yet now it's very common. Right. You used to watch the news. It was like very civil. There was the news. You know, it, this is a public platform. And now the news is like a shouting match in certain in certain circles. People talking over each other. It's it's very, it grates on my ears. I mean, I, I you know, the, the sensitivity that I grew up with doesn't doesn't allow me to even watch those things. I can't, what are, what are those, some of those shows called? The, the, the wind, the spin, the... The view? The view, <laughs> right. Your mom watches Yeah. That. Like women and women, right? And this is going to sound, you know. Yeah, you're gonna, you're going to blow some triggers just now. Yeah, women <laughs> screaming at each other in public. That's like a lot of a, a lot of like things that are just busting out um, 
from from the blurring of the private to the public. Now, I, I know a person might say, you know, who says was it? I'm just talking about like history. I'm, I'm talking about again. We person people have the, the tendency to say, well, what difference does it make? You know, what 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 difference does it make? What's you know, what, what, are you talking about right or wrong, or are you just talking about something arbitrary? So I'm going to try to go to the next step of the consequences of what was once private spilling into what's public. And the question is, are there any delineations, clear delineations between what's private activity and private behavior and public behavior? If there are no such delineations, what happens? So that's the second part of what I said, that when those, when those differences are, are, are blurred, I feel what happens is, is that um, there's a confusion of the realms um, and intimate feelings um, lose their boundaries. It's the world of intimate feeling um, has lost its boundaries. By enlarging the sphere of intimacy, it actually destroys intimacy. Right. So, so that's one example. Meaning, because just to clear that up, intimacy is by definition intimate, which is small, contained, close. By making it something that everybody sees in on and, and has something to say, or making it into a very large sphere, then by definition it cannot exist. Right. That I, that I think everybody would agree with. But that again, the the weight of that problem is in the private sphere, right? Because yes. then you lose your sense of intimacy and what it means to be in a private space. Mm -hmm. And I, I think everybody would hear that today. But I'm going a little bit further, and I'm saying that the reason why we have echo chambers and sectarianism and prejudice and more and more. Um, racial hate, actually, today, and it, which seems to be totally um, antithetical to what our society as a whole is preaching. Mm. Right? It, it doesn't seem to, seem to make sense. Like how, at the same time that we're supposedly so tolerant and so liberal, we're again seeing the resurfacing of racial discrimination and hate. More hate than discrimination, I would say, because there are a lot of laws in place to try to protect you know, people from being discriminated against, but the, the, there's, a, there's a viral hate going around. There's, at least it's being expressed in ways that normally would be uh, condemned from public life. Right. And I think the reason for that is, is because when private life becomes public, that means that your expectations for what you get and need private life is now foisted on the arena of the public. So, so what that means is that you, you by definition, as we said before, cannot relate to everyone intimately like you would want to relate to everyone, right? Because by definition, they're not tied to you by love bonds, by blood bonds, by shared, you know, deep shared experiences, by deep shared convictions. They're not, right? So instead of the public arena being a place where you meet the stranger, it's a place where all of a sudden the public sphere becomes a place where there needs to be a bearing of the soul. There needs to be a bearing of your intimate feelings. But you're not willing to do that with people because it's sensitive. It becomes a sensitive area now in the public. So therefore, in order to protect yourself, you need to separate and segregate much quicker and easier than what once was accepted. And that creates echo chambers and that creates cancel culture. And that creates what we're seeing with young people today because People are coming out with that expectation of like, yeah, we're like, it's almost like, um, or, you know, we're living in this commune, you know, we, you know, there, we, everybody knows what's right, you know, and we should be able to talk about it openly and, and, and deeply about it. And we can even see public figures who bear their soul in public and like here, but you know, the reality is that you go out there and, and people don't agree with you and they have totally different, uh, opposite viewpoints. And, and that's, 
in that sensitive place, you need to protect yourself. So you need to like, I'm out of here. I'm not talking to that guy. Mm-hmm. Where before that used to be called civil discourse. It wasn't threatening to talk to that guy. You were just, he was another citizen of the place that you lived. Maybe if you got to know him a little bit more and you exposed yourself to the differences between you and him, you might even get to like some of the things he had to say. And you might become friends, even though you have different points of view. But now, by foisting the public space onto the, the private space, onto the public space, by blurring those distinctions, we've, we've destroyed the public space. And, and I think that's, that thesis, I think, really holds out to, in today's world where, you know, the, the rise of the self. You know, every, I think Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said that if they're going to look back at our generations, you know, our decades in maybe a hundred years and, and, and they'll talk about like what, what was the belief system of our generations? You know, <clears throat> there were other isms and communisms and socialism and, and overarching beliefs, you know, some, so to speak, the gods of the generations before. And what is our God today? And it, it's clear that what people are most interested in today is themselves. It's the, the worship of self. And it's not bad, because it's it's know, know thyself. But knowing the rise of the self in place of the deity, you know, so to speak, means that we are deifying ourselves and each other. But it also means that we're fearful of each other. Because we're creating the space where everything needs to be a reflection of myself and it impacts on myself and what's good for my ultimate uh, welfare and my emotional well-being. It's all about that. In the, even in the public space. So of course I'm gonna I'm gonna go into very very small. I'm going in. That's the paradox of modern society. I'm gonna keep going into these more smaller reduced spaces because only there and what I'm calling public space, because only there I can be intimate, mm-hmm. and only there I can develop myself <clears throat> that I'm trying to get to know desperately. Mm-hmm. You, you following? Right. Just clarify that last part when of people um, going into smaller and smaller spaces in the in the public sectors is what you're calling then what you're referring to echo chambers. Yes. People going smaller and smaller into places where they feel like <clears throat> they they are one with other people, same opinions, same thoughts, and then we have just groups and groups of people who are all chunked into the same kind of thinking, same kind of expression because it's what feels safe to them. And I'm, I'm making a th- the theory that this is because of the confusion of the realms of private and public. Mm-hmm. It's it's really great. I, I love when conversations like these feel like my brain is physically expanding. I kind of got that feeling because in my mind, I I always, especially with you guys as parents, like I always grew up knowing that there was things that we share inside, things that we share outside. We don't mix them. There is a differentiation. Um, and I, so I'm, I've never wanted to be famous either in my life. I feel like that's like the worst curse anyone could ever have is <laughs> to be famous and have their private life exposed. That to me sounds like the worst nightmare of my life. Um, but at the same time, especially as I'm ex- like expanding myself as a life coach and, and, and working on businesses and stuff and with the development of social media seeming almost like a need, um, it, it has been becoming harder and harder to really understand that boundary clearly because there's this, like you're saying, there's this need and craving from people on social media as well as the people um, producing on social media to, to, to feel close with other people. But it's very hard, if not impossible, to really create that intimacy when you're in public spaces. So it becomes this constant challenge of what is appropriate to share and what isn't. What is too personal and what is 
beneficial for others? Do I bring other people into my story, into my journey, right? Using words that are more out there. Um, so, so that my um, experience could help other people. Um, or is it, or is this just something that isn't, is it necessary for me to share? Um, so it's definitely something tricky. I'm, I'm finding more and more for it to be tricky and, and establishing for myself more and more what those lines are. Um, but what I loved about what you were saying before was in my mind, I kind of just pictured um, almost like a stick figure person in a, in a circle with a bunch of friends. And then there's that outer circle with a whole bunch of people. And in that little circle, there's what you're saying, like the bearing of the heart and the vulnerability and the safety of, of being with people who love and accept you, even when there is differences, because there is a special bond there, because because there is existing already a relationship of love and care and respect and honesty and all those different things. Um, and then there's the outside circle, which, like you said, it, because it's not within your inner circle, there's like almost like a doning of, I wouldn't say armor, but there's like a, there's a closing a little bit when you go outside so that you can meet people and come up to things that are different to you and not the same um, without feeling it's like it's attacking you because there's there's distance. It's not personal. Um, but then when there's like almost a shattering of the inner circle. It's almost as if you're standing in the middle of an arena full of people looking at you and asked to share your deepest secrets. It's terrifying. <laughs> and and I can totally then understand and see how it's becoming this, um, this thing that we go out there into the world expecting to be accepted and taken and listened to and heard and with this value almost of, you know, be you, be you, be real, be authentic everywhere. Um, and how much pressure that puts on people to... to to share and be vulnerable. But if you break that inner circle and then you're, you're having to expose that to everybody is incredibly, incredibly vulnerable, which then as a natural instinct, we're always going to be, you know, throwing up our, our barriers. And, and then that causes hate and fear and, and being mean and secretive and manipulative and all kinds of things, because there's just not that safety and closure and security that comes within relationships that are close. So just, seeing through that perspective how then there's this need to create inner circles within the outer circles makes so much sense to me now uh, and that was something that I hadn't I hadn't seen before that wasn't like a connection that I made so that was really cool right. um, and it was just good good image imagery in my mind it just like whew. well uh, I'm glad you're having this epiphany uh, <laughs> I, I mean a lot of times our generation would throw around words like it's not appropriate you know propriety Appropriate, but it's those words are like I said, they're they're really stripped of a moral bearing. It just it doesn't you're not sure what exactly it means. Like who cares really? It, they're very subjective, and they are. But what I'm saying is that those words were used to create and to protect a public space. We we are we're definitely coming from you know the um, the you know the you know the 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 uh, the, the, uh, the larger emphasis being on private life and the integrity of oneself but then there's knowing the boundaries you know the limits of yourself and where the public arena starts and i think that we can blur those differences at our own peril i i feel very very deeply <clears throat> that today we've made it into a value you know the bearing of one's soul in public and it comes at a price it comes at a price of our own um, recognition and sincerity when it comes to our own intimacy. And it also comes at, um, the, at the price of the destruction of the safety of public spheres, public space. Because now what we're seeing is this a great um, uh, cultural war out there for space. 
if it, it, you understand, like when you walk into a university today and people are screaming, safe space, we need safe space, microaggression. The reason why we didn't understand it when we were children is because in the public space, the expectation was not that you need to be intimately safe here or to have a space here so that you could express your intimate self. This isn't a space for you to express your intimate self, so you shouldn't have that expectation. If you don't have that expectation, you can't get upset about not having it. Meaning all space back then was quote-unquote safe because no one needed that extra emotional safety. It was I, just, I, don't, I don't want to go that it was all safe. I mean, there was plenty of aggression, but it was a different type of aggression. No, I'm, I'm describing it as if you're talking about safe space, you're talking about a space where people express themselves without getting um, shot back at or, or lashed out on or being like, oh, no, that's not true. Or, you know, people ex- expressing offense at what's being said. It just wasn't something that you expressed back then. So there was no need for this extra coating of bubble wrap to make sure that everyone feels safe and okay to express and be who they are. Which they will never, which is why it's not real, and therefore cancel culture, and therefore segregation, sectarianism, more racial hatred, more more awareness of who's who, and, and the differences between us as opposed to what brings us together. When that expectation isn't there, when the more realistic expectation is there of public sphere, so then people live together in harmony because what brings them together is enough to bring them together. It doesn't have to be everything Right. And that it, brings them together. And it's not so, personal. So a person didn't go around in public displaying and talking about loudly what their sexual orientation was. And I'm not taking a position, again, this is not a conversation about a moral position, which of course we have, but it's not even the point. It's not our point now. The point is, is that it's just because it's intimate, it doesn't belong in a public conversation. If you want to put it in a public conversation, expect everyone to make space and consideration and tolerance for that, then you're barking up an unrealistic tree. You're not being realistic at, at best, right? Mm-hmm. Best. So that, And you're setting yourself up for a lot of frustration. But because, the, in other words, the power of those voices today, which to me seems so strange, but in today's world it's common, is that, hey, aren't we as a society together, you know, and, and agree on the fact that public space is really private space? So if we are, so then I want my space. I want to talk about my sexual orientation in public, and I want to feel fine about it, and I want to be validated. And I want you to be supportive. Yeah, everything that I would do, everything that I would do amongst friends, intimate friends, I want to feel the same way in public. Mm. And that is impossible because you're asking other people to sacrifice their own values. They're never going to feel the same, even if they're tolerant, so to speak, which means they put up with you, but doesn't mean that they're going to take your position. They're not going to be empathetic. They might be tolerant at best. So if somebody looks at you and you feel microaggressed, it's inevitable. I mean, people are people. And, the, and it was much more pragmatic to have public spaces as they were. It was constructed on, a, on something sound. It's, so it's interesting. So we can have this level of conversation where we're just talking about social considerations and not necessarily moralistic considerations. But I want to go, just to wrap up for this week, I want to go into, like we said, the daily portion. There's something that's really interesting. Huh? The weekly portion. Oh, right, the weekly portion. There's something really interesting. We begin the book of what's called, num- not numbers, it's um, it's really called uh, the Exodus. Exodus. Right, names. It should be called names right. because the Hebrew word is Shemot. So this is exactly the point. Why isn't the book called the book of Exodus or the book of redemption? Why is it called the book of names? We're just going to scratch the surface of it because there's a tremendous paradox here in the beginning of the story 
that relates to us about these are the names of the children of Israel that came down to Egypt, and it says exactly their names. There was Jacob, there was Reuben, there was Shimon, da da da. Joseph died, and all that generation. Period. These are their names, and the commentary Rashi says we go over their names here to say that they're so beloved in their lifetime and in their death. They're just like stars. That you know, God brings them out in the night. He puts them in during the day. He brings them out in the night. Every night, as if He's counting the stars. They're so special, right? So, it's, what do you hear from that? Like a lot of individuality, you know, a lot of distinctive individuality, right? And the next phrase says, "And and those people and the children of Israel began to multiply, and Yisro is like 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 massive growth." I was just talking about this with your brother. <laughs> he was trying to explain it. It's, it's almost as if you can imagine like a, a little hole that starts like teeming with insects right. that kind of shoom. Yeah. <laughs> Such great imagery. I needed to share that. Right. Like talking a about teeming, public and private. <laughs> exploding population. Right. right. An exploding population. Right. Okay. There's an exploding population. From there on, even though we're dealing with, you know, real personalities, the Torah never mentions any names. Right. This is something that many people have raised as an issue but if you go into it it's like really really strange um you know of course pharaoh doesn't have a name it's just pharaoh but he he's definitely afraid of this no-name menace you know that's the the, the b'nai israel the people of israel that they seem to be like you know germinating here and there seems to be so many of them like so he starts making these measures and he tries to coerce or sweet talk some women, we don't know who they are. Our tradition says that these women, these midwives, were none other than Miriam, the, the sister of Moshe, who's a very prominent personality in the rest of the Torah by name, and Yochebed, which is the mother of Moshe, which is left from the previous generation, a very important person. Again, no name. It gives them another name, a pseudonym, Shifra and Pua, which has to do with the growth of the Jewish people, how they were such great midwives that they, you know, would do whatever they could to, and under those conditions, to, to make sure that the children were okay and alive and well, etc., and then he makes this draconian measure that they need to kill the males. Which is strange. I mean, is he, is he committing genocide or is he not committing genocide? And the Midrashim always asks that question, like, what kind of a, what was he thinking? I mean, all it takes is one male to impregnate ten females. And you have the nation back, you know, back all over again. Regenerating. Why is it that he decides that he's just going to knock off the males? As opposed to everyone. As opposed to the females, mm-hmm. also. What, what, what was he thinking, right? And then again, and then again, these, you know, the, this conversation, and then, and then we have this back conversation of the leader of the Jewish people is looking at these draconian measures, and he's like, that's it, you know, it looks like this is it, knocking off all the males. He's like totally cowed by this measure, and he decides to separate himself from his wife and not to procreate anymore. Amram, the father of Moshe, Moses, right? And it's his daughter, actually, uh, Miriam, who convinces him that his measures are actually more draconian than than Pyro, because he's making sure that no, no one's going to be uh, uh, brought to life, because uh, Pyro is only trying to get rid of the males, but you're getting rid of the females, right? And, and Pyro is here today, gone tomorrow. What you're saying is going to be forever if you stick with it, right? And and what about God? I mean, he, she she's like really, anyway, this little daughter of his convinces him. But the Torah doesn't say anything about this regrouping, this remarriage. It just uses them anonymously. A man came from the house of Levi, and he marries a daughter of Levi. This is none other than Amram marrying Yochebed. It doesn't mention their names. Right? And and the sister is the one who makes sure that, and again, the Bat Paro, no name, you know, comes down. 
and she sees him, and she and Moses is given a name by her, right? The name is not given from the parents, and um, it's just it's just amazing. You know, you you don't see anything. You don't see, you know. It's just an anonymous uh, theater here of of actors, you know, creating a, a nation here and living in in exile. You're not treat you know the beginning of the, the the book which starts with the names and these are the names and it's so important and then all of a sudden you're like we flow into this like nameless um, existence. So what does that mean? What could that mean for us? So I still think it's an interesting point. I never thought about why Exodus was called Exodus and not names. Or why it's called names in Hebrew, but translated as Exodus. Right. It's really all about the beginning of names and then no names. Right. So that's what I'm um, transposing into the private versus the public. Right. The private being where you have a name, you know, where you are known intimately. That's your name. And the public is like this teeming mass of people, you know, where it's a different type of existence. It's a different type of existence. I mean, the Jewish people were the Bnei Israel were were, you know, they, their their numbers were growing, you know, almost exponentially. We're led to believe here in the in the pasuk, and then all of a sudden we're treated to this these nameless figures, you know, that are the protagonists of the future of the Jewish people. So, so what is it? So it's like um, why it, why all of a sudden does the private, you know, become quiet? The private space of the of the name become quiet within this public space. So there's um, I, uh, I, I want to just try to end off the, our talk today by saying a particular idea, and then perhaps we'll be able to continue it later because there's a whole part of this conversation that we need to have, which is about um, where public life and private life really face off against each other, you know, how to make those decisions. For example, you know, living in a pandemic, the whole corona pandemic was all about that. In the beginning, we're like, yes. People are really willing to sacrifice for the sanctity of human life because we don't want anybody to, God forbid, die, even if it means we're going to lose business. And, and the whole world pretty much was willing to accept that, maybe perhaps Sweden. Um, and that was amazing. But then as time wore on, people kind of got a feeling that it wasn't necessary and that it really needs to be a conversation. You know, there's the public good, right? It's public life that needs to continue, even if it's at the expense of perhaps individuals. It started coming up again. And that actually is really what's going on over here um, in the beginning of Shemot. Um, even though then it wasn't necessarily, you know... Uh, they weren't quarantining. <laughs> right. No, but it wasn't... It, this was a big issue. In other words, Amram said, we need, to make a, we need to make a public decision. We need to have a public uh, determination that we're not going to have children. Why should we bring children into this world if they're all going to get killed? I mean, this is a horrible time to bring children or we're not doing that. And and the, and the feminine side, so to speak, which is what I'm going to explain, is the, like the nameless life force that's represented by Miriam. It says we need to protect the sanctity of human life. And she's saying human life or bust. We must continue because that is the our shared ethic. And that's where we come from. So the name... Of the name, which is the particularity of, of humans and the particularity of human life, that's the value that the women in the story were upholding. And the men in the story couldn't get it. 
Amram was open-minded enough to hear his child, and he did understand it. But a man like Paro, which everybody says, like, what kind of an idiot? He's thinking, like, like, if I just chop off the head, I don't have a nation anymore. If I chop off the men, in those days especially, the men were the names. They were the, you know, the particularity of the nation. So you chop off the heads of the men, in other words, off the, off from the nation, then you don't have any shame anymore. There's no name to them anymore. It's just amorphous. So therefore, they'll disappear, and they'll become slaves just like everybody else. They won't talk about freedom, and they won't talk about anything like that. And all of the, the, the values that eventually became representative of the Jewish people started from this particular point of the sanctity of human life that was championed by the women. And that's like a nameless, that was like a nameless struggle. Because it is nameless, but it's so basically about names that it fuses in the same idea. The idea of the protection and the willing to fight um, at all costs for the sake of the sanctity of human life is, is the essence of where you build individuality. If there is no sanctity for human life, then there is no individuality, and there are no names. So this whole story of anonym, an, an anonymousness was of was uh, basically the the champion the championing of the sanctity of human life through the women, which um, in this whole context are given like this nameless spirit. But ultimately, that is those were the, that was the building block of the nation. In this in this private in this public space of namelessness, they were the ones that built the names into the Jewish people by insisting in the sanctity of human life, and the insistence of going on and procreating and doing whatever it took to protect um, human life. That's like a deep idea. But all right, well, thanks for I yell it <laughs> for being involved in this. And then inspiring uh, this conversation between us, which is a private conversation, and we hope whoever's listening will also enjoy it. (laughs) 